Whoever prayed for Sun today, thank you. You can stay. This is awesome. Um, so glad you are all here. And if this is your first time joining us, just as Tara mentioned earlier, a special welcome to you. Um, this is a time where we are going to be looking at God's word. We've been singing in response uh, to who he is, to what he has done, to what he has spoken. And now we're going to unpack that a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, if you could turn to the Old Testament, we are going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And if you do not have a Bible, we have some Bibles out there in the Connection Center. Feel free to grab those. That is our gift to you. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel today. We're kind of going to be jumping around a few places. So if I go a little fast for you, all the verses will be on the screens behind me. But we are currently going through a sermon series based on the book of 1 Samuel. How many have been enjoying just taking a book of the Bible and going through it? Has that, has that been fun? Just the pastors, okay. We're, we're the only ones having fun here? No, I, I think this is great. Because uh, I believe that these books are written to strengthen us, to strengthen God's people, to strengthen those that don't know God yet, to find out who he is. And so we've been going through First and Second Samuel. Um, and actually, these books... Uh, they're actually one book. Modern Hebrews would still see this as just the book of Samuel. Okay, so you have 55 chapters total, but it's just one book. But we're just going through First uh, Samuel, as in, excuse me, as in our Bible. Um, and First Samuel, what this centers on is this. It centers on a judge or a prophet by the name of Samuel, hence the name of the book, and the two kings that he anoints, Saul and David. Uh, today we're going to talk just a little bit about Saul, but we're saving that for next week. Um, but as we've seen, uh, as we've been looking through the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen a few transitions happening through the children of Israel. Um, and uh, some of these we looked at last week was our worship systems, the way that the children of Israel worshipped. Uh, they would carry the presence of God around them in the Ark of the Covenant. This was God's expression of his power on earth, and we saw last week when it was taken away, the Israelites forgot that they actually had God with them, but they were just depending on his stuff, and so their worship, we're seeing transitions in the way that they worship. They worship God, now they just worship God's stuff, and now they just worship other things other than God, so like these worship systems are changing. We also see a transition uh, from the failing priest Eli that we talked about in the first two weeks to Samuel, a righteous judge, prophet, and as we're, we're going to see today, a kingmaker. Um, and then what we're going to look at specifically today, we see a transition from Israel having no king, no earthly king, to Saul, to King Saul. Um, and basically, I've titled my message, A King of the People's Initiative. I'm going to say that again because it took me 30 minutes to come up with that. And I was really proud of myself. I'm texting friends and they're like, cool. Uh, yeah, they didn't like it, but I'm going to say it again. A king of the people's initiative. That's what we're dealing with today. And so through these transitions, we see positive and negative examples of what leaders provide. But more importantly, as we're going through 1 Samuel and through each transition, this teaches us something about God. As we shall see through the book of 1 Samuel, God is showing not only his power, his control, his patience, his salvation, and righteous judgment, but also the fact that he often brings about his purposes in surprising, ironic, and seemingly upside-down ways that we would normally choose. 
So uh, if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to break this up into three sections. So I'm just going to go to verse 9 right now as we open up. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. (laughs) Isn't that nice? (laughs) Behold, (laughs) hey, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say for you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they, all, so they are also doing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now. Would you please teach us what this means? Would you take over at this time? In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was seven years old, um, my family and I, we were missionaries, and uh, in the Philippines, we would go, you know, to people's houses for meals and stuff, and one particular meal, we went um, to an elderly uh, American couple's house, and we went for breakfast, and it was a great breakfast, great spread, nice Filipino food, longanisa, okay, it was delicious, and the lady came out, and she brought an imported box of cereal from the States called Cookie Crisp. Does anyone know Cookie Crisp? Come on, America. It's amazing. Cookies for breakfast. This is so good. So she said, who would like some of this? And I said, I wouldn't. So she poured it out, and she gave it to me. And while I'm eating it, I am so excited, and I wear my heart on my sleeve. I cannot keep this joy inside. And I look at her, and I say, wow, this is so good. I wish you were my mom. Speechless. I wish that's the response I would have got. Everyone was speechless. No one knew how to react. I didn't know what to do besides still eating, so I kept eating. And then uh, I went to the washroom, and as I was walking to the washroom, I heard coming from the stairs crying and sniffling. And so I walked up. Guess who it was? Good guess. Yeah, it was my mom. And I walked up. I said, why are you crying? We got cookie crisp. She said, Matt, do you know what you said? I'm like, yeah, I really like cookie crisp. She said, that's not what you said. You said that you wish that that woman was your mom. Like, wow, I wouldn't put it that way. Did I say that? Me? You know, that that sounds like my sister. That sounds like something she would say. But she goes, Matt, do you, and oh, it broke me. She's like, "Do, do you know what that means? Like, I wake up every day wanting to be your mom. I go to sleep every night hoping that I was a good mom, and you just traded me for a bowl of cereal. (laughs) And then my dad came up. Now it got real. (laughs) But my dad, in good fashion, he just goes, Matt, you're an idiot. (laughs) But he said, but you're our idiot. (laughs) I'm like, thank you, Dad. Okay, (coughs) excuse me, 
So like that story, we see what we just read in chapter 8, the request of the children of Israel. And what's the request? Now appoint. So it's not even a request. It's a command. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. We want to be like them. So give us a king like they have. Is this a bad request? I mean, is it okay to ask for leadership, to ask for things that just we know that will work better for us? Hey, it's working for them, so isn't it like better and more functional if we just do what's working? We don't want to break the system here. Um, Was Israel not supposed to have a king? Was it a bad request? Well, we see in the books of Samuel, um, they actually concern themselves with God's coming king, a theme that is, uh, excuse me, with a long history in the Bible. We start with Adam, okay? Adam, back in Genesis chapter 2. God's, excuse me, Adam and Eve. Oh, sorry, Adam. Adam is God's son, the image bearer, who was called to have dominion over creation, as we see in Genesis 1. He and his offspring were to function as God's uh, representatives to creation. And when Adam and Eve rebelled, God mercifully promised that through the seed of the woman would come a serpent-crushing offspring. So God wasn't surprised. It wasn't a, oops, what do I have to do now? No, he, he knew this would happen, but a king was supposed to still come. So through Abraham, God promised Abraham not merely the prospect of offspring, but also the fact that kings would come from him. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he repeated and specified the kingly promise to his own son, Judah. From his line would come a lion-like ruler who would receive the tribute and obedience of the people. And then we see in Exodus, Moses, as God raises up Moses to free his people, as is mentioned in uh, chapter 8, Moses gave specific directions for the kind of king Israel would have. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I believe it will be behind me. It says this, when you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you. I love that giving you, not if you're good enough, not if you make it one day. No, what God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, Uh, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take um, many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees. Excuse me, and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to his left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over the kingdom in Israel. God knew that there would be a king. He wanted a king for his people, but he wanted a king that he would choose. And as we see, Israel's king was to be quite different from the kings of the nations around them. He was to be humble and righteous, one whom the Lord, your God, will choose. So requesting and having a king was not the issue. Israel's sin was not that they wanted a king. 
but it was that they wanted to be ruled by someone else than God. That was their sin. God knew the need of his people and had always planned to give them what they needed, but it would look different than they thought because God is a different God. A king for Israel was always in God's plan. The question was whether Israel would wait on God's timing and seek God's kind of king. But we see that Israel did not wait on God at all, especially when asking for a king. We see in the book of Judges, which is a, first, uh, which is a couple books uh, ahead of 1 Samuel, we see that they call up this guy Gideon. Now, Gideon is a military leader, a prophet, a judge, and they say this, the verses behind me. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Man, they're just giving it away. <laughs> rule over us. You and your grandson also. We don't care. <laughs> rule us. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, we might say, well done, Gideon. You got it. But it looks like he's doing the right thing. It's a kind gesture to God. But he neglects to remind people where the victory came from. It didn't come from Gideon. It came from God. And he didn't remind them to choose God as their king or to trust God for a king. He's just like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. But instead, he should have given it back to God. And as a result, the children of Israel do not find a king in the book of Judges. As the book ends with this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, do we like movies here? Just a few people. How many like uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Did we? Okay, cool. I, I was going to show a clip, but then, yeah, I didn't know if it would confuse, offend. I, I don't even know. <laughs> but you have King Arthur, and he's on this quest for the Holy Grail. And so he's riding along the countryside, or actually banging coconuts together on the countryside. And he sees a castle. And so he asks a peasant, he says, old woman, but it's actually a man. And he's like, a man, you know. It's a very funny sketch, but I'll, yeah, I'll hurry up. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and he sees a castle and he says, who lives in that castle? And they're like, well, no one lives there. What do you mean no one lives in that castle? Oh, no one lives there. And he goes, well, who is your king? They're like, we don't have a king. He's like, no, I'm your king. I'm Arthur. King of the Britons. And the peasant's like, King of the Who? Like, King of the Who, right? King of the Who. He's like, The Britons. Who are the Britons? We're all Britons. I apologize to all Britons for my. Okay. But who are the Britons? We're all Britons. And I'm your king. And I love this line. Well, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> He's like, You don't vote for a king. He's like, Okay, but who lives in that castle? And he's like, Well, well we all do. We're, I forgot what he said, in our whatever, collective, right? Uh, we're this group, and we just take turns ruling. I do Monday, she do, does Tuesday, and all that stuff. Um, and in the same way, sorry, I should just show the clip, but <laughs> in the same way, the Israelites are using their title, the children of Israel, the children of God. That's who they are. By definition, whose children are you? God's. So who do you listen to? God. That's their identity. But they're treating that title in the same way. They already have someone who's going to rule over them perfectly and lovingly. But they want a ruler like everyone else. They want a king like everyone else. They don't want to be judged by God or do things his way. And I wonder if we are any different today. We want God to win our battles. We want God to provide 
uh, jobs for us. We want God to protect us during the hard times. We want God to give us that special someone. We want God to provide. But when he asks us to do anything, we say, no, provide first. Do this first, and then we'll respond instead of trusting our king. So what does God do? That's the report Samuel gives back to him. Says, God, they, they want a king like the other nations. What does he do? Well, he gives them what they want. Why? Why? Because God's not a puppet master. He doesn't make robots. He makes children. He makes children. And if the kids don't want them, what can he do? And so this is what he says. God tells Samuel, the Israelites, uh, that they wanted a king like everyone else. Verse 10, Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people that they were asking for a king. And God said, this is what the, excuse me, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with the chariots and horses, and they will run in front of the chariots. Excuse me. Uh, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his chariots. Now, see if any word sticks out here. It's mentioned six times. He will take your daughters. There, that was a hint. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage excuse me, and of your vintage, and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Dad has spoken, that's right. Why does God want to choose a king for his children? Because other kings take. Because other kings take. And God, your father, does not want that. He wants to give. He wants to give. You see, earthly kings, um, the way that we see, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, when I think of kings, I just think of like movies that I've seen and stuff like that because I've never been under like, imperial rule or anything, but some of us may have uh, studied that. Maybe we have come from a culture like that. But you see, earthly kings, they're kind of used as like functional and contractional, right? Like, like, let me give a few examples. Hey, king, you protect me, and I'll vote for you, okay? You, you want my vote? Do this for me, and I'll do that. You hold up your end of the deal, I'll do my part. Uh, I'll put in my time if you respond. Uh, I'll trust the king for this transaction or whatever, but stay out of my way for the other parts of my life. So I'll help you here, but you can't have this. We, we can do the kingly relationship. We can do the business thing. Pleasure doing business with you. Thank you, king. Okay, maybe that's kind of how we see this. But in God's covenant, it's not based on what we can do or what we bring to the table. He does not want a business partner. He wants our hearts. He wants his kids. He wants our hearts. God's love and rule operate on a different level because there is no sin in him. And when we reject God as king, we are simply rejecting his heart. Not just the opportunity for him to rule or the title to rule. We're rejecting what is in his heart. We're not just saying no to a deal. We are pushing him out of our lives. 
And unlike the taking king that we saw in the passage, God's heart is not a taking heart, but it is one that gives worth and purpose. It is a heart that fights for you when you have already surrendered. It is a heart that gives vision beyond what we can imagine. His heart brings salvation, freedom, love, joy, peace. So the big deal for Israel is that they are actually rejecting God. They are rejecting his good plans for them. They are already rejecting, in a way, his son Jesus, the true king. Because as we see, that was the plan all along. That Jesus, the perfect king, God himself, would come to this earth and show us how it is to live life with the Father, the way it's supposed to be. But that wasn't good enough for the children of Israel. And they already said no. And when we reject God's heart, our heart remains hollow because there is nothing that can fill it like the Father's heart. But still, the people respond. 1 Samuel 8, after all of that, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No! Exclamation mark. <laughs> they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They're not even seeing what they're rejecting. They're just seeing what they want. And like us, we want God to win our battles. But we don't want to listen sometimes to what he has to say. We would rather have an authority we think we can control rather than the Father's heart. God uses authority to create space. That creates relationship with one another. And with rejection of God's authority, this is just a slippery slope. And I'm going I'm to talk a little bit here because I believe we have all been affected by this, especially in Western culture, um, the way that we view church, the way that we view coming together. Because based on how we feel things should be, I believe it has changed the way that we respond and worship to God. Let me unpack it this way. Inside the church, the call to discipleship, following Jesus, telling others about him and leading them to them, the call of discipleship has been silence to the need of acceptance. Sure, maybe I need to do that, but right now I need a few things. The call to repent and forgive has been covered by saying that God loves you. And that's true. God does love you. Loves you so much that he's giving you stuff to do. That he's giving you purpose. He's giving you a life to live. He's not giving you excuses to get out of life. He's giving you exactly what you need to live life, to experience life, to give life away. The call to join a community and work things out with people. Instead, it's become a hiding place in the church, a consumer, not a participator. And I'm just speaking from my own experience, um, where, uh, you know, coming from a larger church, I've met so many people, and I would ask them, hey, is this your first time? No, I've been coming here for three years. Why am I just seeing you now? Well, I, I come every once in a while and stuff. Cool, but why don't you stay? Well, you know, the people kind of get on my nerves, but I really like the preaching. That's cool. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I'll let you sit with that one. Um, but it has become, the church has become, instead of a place where we experience life together, where we pray together, where we praise God together, depend on God together, it's become very individual. And that's not the body of Christ. 
But it's become, oh, this is good for me right now. I'm comfortable here. This is where I'll stay. And we're not listening to our Father's voice at that point. We're listening to our own. Um, Then that consumer attitude is more concerned with what they experienced. Instead of submitting um, to God, we submit to our preferences. We submit to our hurt, our expectation, and whatever else we think that we need. Uh, Instead of trusting God daily and making that priority through our own time management and relationship with God, we depend on pastors and teachers to feed us. This is a good thing, but we, we have a brain. We have a heart. We can feed. So many of my friends who have stopped going to church, I'm like, hey, why have you stopped going to church? Ah, the pastor just doesn't do it for me anymore. I'm like, come on, man, I only preached one time. Like, <laughs> like ah, it just doesn't work for me anymore. They, they don't connect with me. I'm like, man, they're preaching to a bunch of people. Like, have you connected with God this week? Ah, yeah, I listen to a podcast or two, but I'm looking for some new ones. I'm like, okay. So it's become information transfer. It's become a standard instead of receiving what God has for us. And when we depend, forgive my little soapbox there, but when we depend on what we want rather than accepting what we need from God, we will, just like the children of Israel, reject the heart of God. We will give our heart away for a hollow exchange just because we wanted cereal. So how does God's authority and his choices get redeemed and not replaced? Because we need a king. We do. I I mean, our our life needs order. It needs rule. um, It needs boundaries. It needs leadership. It does. On our own, we're a mess. But how does God's authority get redeemed in all of this? Some years ago, C.S. Lewis, he's had some pretty good things to say. He wrote an article entitled Equality. And in it, he states that he is in favor of democracy, a government that's ran by the whole population, simply because we are all sinners. I love that. I'm in for democracy simply because we are all sinners. We have broken relationship with God. We are in need of checks and balances. But democracy is not medicine. Or excuse me, but democracy is medicine. It's not food. So it's something that we need for checks and balances, But it's not food. It's not the life source. It is medicine for what ails us, but it's not food. Ultimate reality is not democracy because you were made to be ruled. And if you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, you will serve somebody. You will bow your knee to someone. You may not admit that that is what you're doing, but human nature will be served. And Lewis said, if it doesn't get food, it will gobble up poison. Because we are looking for things. We are looking uh, for what everyone else has and neglecting what God has already given. Um, I want to end with this uh, illustration. A couple months ago, uh, Pastor Greg, Jonathan, and myself, Tim was there as well. We went to uh, Every Nation Cluster in Los Angeles. And as we were coming back, we were waiting in the airport, uh, yeah, in the lounge, and there was a guy sitting next to me. And uh, I looked at him and then went back to my uh, iPad and I was trying to download, um, I was trying to download some Netflix shows or whatever to watch on the plane. So I was doing that and I heard a voice, I don't get this often, but I heard a voice, talk to the man beside you. And I responded, but I'm doing something. (laughs) And I kid you not, 
The se- or, and the second thing the voice said was, you will not be watching Netflix today. I'm like, okay. So I closed it, and I leaned over. I said, hey, my name's Matt. How's it going? He goes, oh, I'm good. I'm good. My name's Richard. Um, and we were talking a little bit. And uh, he's like, so what brings, you to, uh, what brings you to L.A.? And I said, well, actually, uh, I'm a pastor, and I came for a pastor's conference. And he looked at me. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> he leaned in and goes, I just want you to know what you believe is a total joke, and that makes you a weaker person for believing in God. <laughs> Off the bat. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't know what to do. You know what I was thinking? That didn't take long. I get Netflix back. This is great. (laughs) Awesome. But that voice was still there. And the voice didn't say talk. The voice said listen. And so I just asked him. I said, man, cool. Why? Tell me why. He's like, man... Because you have pastors on TV and in these big churches and religious people and now even in politics, the evangelical movement, supporting things and their actions do not line up with their words. And aren't they supposed to be God's words? And man, he went. And I'm like, wow. And he's like, man, these people, they preach on money. Doesn't God provide that for you Christians? Man, what about relationships? What about this? What about government? What about this? Like, doesn't God provide all those things? Yeah, he does. And we were talking and talking, and so I asked him, I said, well, if God won't be the ruler in your life, who will be the ruler? He's like, well, natural selection, it'll be me. And I'm like, okay, what makes you a good leader, a good ruler? He's like, well, I'm going to find other good people like me, and then we're just going to tell people to be good. Like, awesome. Who's a good person? He said, you know, people like me, like you, and I'm like, I appreciate that. But you know what? I would rather be watching Netflix right now than talking about this. I'm a terrible person. (laughs) I'm terrible. (laughs) And he said... Well, tell me, why, why, do you, why do you use the crutch that you call Jesus? I'm like, it's a good word. Thank you for sharing. And I said, I agree with everything you said, except that the crutch that you talk about, Jesus, I don't lean on him like that. He's like, well, why not? Because the crutch talks back. That's the reason I'm talking to you right now. The crutch cares about you, Richard. And we just talked about the value that God gives, the relationship that he wants to give, that his words are better than any philosophy, any idea that you will ever hear. Why? Because he loves you unlike anyone ever will. And Richard, he was like, okay, we got to keep talking. So we've been. We've been talking through Facebook, which has been pretty sweet. Maybe he's listening. Hi, Richard. And uh, I told him I was preaching. Yeah, sorry. Um, But what I wanted to leave with today, um, what we're going to be going into next week is we are going to see that God did let Israel choose a king, and they chose Saul. And we're going to see what kind of leader Saul was. He was a leader without God. 
but we're, I'm not going to take too much of that. Um, but I wonder right now, are we like the children of Israel sometimes? Do we call for a king? Do we call for something just because everyone else has it? Instead of looking at what has already been provided for us? Now, as a Baptist, here's where I would give you the three application points that you can take with you. But what I want to leave you with today is not application, but implication. If you choose something else other than God as your king, that's what you'll get. You will get a, a king that takes, a king that looks out for themselves just as you are looking out for yourself, a king that does not know how to lead you or love you, but with God. God is the king that gives his heart away freely, despite who we are, despite that we reject him willingly, yet he keeps willingly giving to us. At this point, I'd like to invite the uh, worship team up. And what we are going to do is we are going to, uh, it's the first of the month, and so we are going to uh, participate in communion uh, together. And this is a way, if you've taken communion before, this is a picture that the church has of the love of Jesus, our King. When we look at the elements, we have the elements of uh, the bread that represents his body, which was broken for us willingly. And we have the, um, the juice, which is in the cup, um, that represents his blood that, again, was shed willingly for us. The cost of our sin, the cost of broken relationship that covered that for us. And when you look at this, you know, sometimes we look at the uh, Lord's table we may look at it as, uh, I'm not good enough. So we look at it in judgment. I'm just not there yet. But I would challenge you to look at it as an open invitation. That this is a table of a king that says, I'm all in. This is my heart. This is what I have for you. Will you come and will you take and will you participate? Will you trust me? 